been with us this semester. Um, our whole sermon series this semester is about wisdom. And tonight, uh, we're talking about God's wisdom as it pertains to our desires. In this time of the year, uh, I, I'm inclined to believe that many of us um, are, are pretty hopeless uh, in response to some of our desires, and I just thought it was a good time to talk about it. So I want to start with this question tonight. Um, it seems like such an innocuous question, but man, this is a big one. What do you want? What do you want? I want you to think about that. What do you want? Actually, pull out, everybody pull out your cell phones, or, or if you take notes, like a journal or whatever you're n- noting with, uh, you can uh, write on there. I want you to, but I want you to pull up some note-taking app or, or have some notepad in your hands and a pen, and I want you to, to write down the answer to this question. What do you want? As I continue to talk, I want you to keep that open, that app or that journal or that piece of paper or something, or your hand, whatever. I want you to keep that open until you write something down. I want you to write something down. What do you want? What desire or desires are swimming around under the surface of your thoughts? What hungers are operating in some kind of, uh, as some kind of baseline throughout your day? In response to your anger, or your loneliness, or your hurt, or your anxiety, or your hopes. What do you want? Let's pray. Father, we ask for your Spirit's help in searching our hearts and our minds. You tell us, uh, Father, that your Spirit searches the deep waters in us and searches the deep waters in you and communicates from deep to deep. Would you do that tonight? May the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, a rock and a redeemer. Amen. In one of my uh, favorite books, if you haven't written down an answer to that question, keep it open and write it down. What do you want? In one of my favorite books from this past year, <clears throat> the author recaps the story of a 1980s film called The Stalker, <laughs> which just sounds like a terrible film, uh, just because of the name. Uh, in this film, there's these two protagonists that are wandering through some kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland uh, with a guide who is leading them to this place called The Zone, and in the middle of The Zone is this place called The Room. And in the room, all of their dreams will come true. This is the premise of the story of the movie, The Stalker. All of their dreams will come true. Their deepest desires will be satisfied if they could just make it to the room. And they make this journey to this place all the while dreaming of how amazing it will be when they arrive. And finally, they're standing before the entrance to this room and the guide, this person that had been leading them the whole time, Invites either of them to go first. Who wants to go first? And they had been excited about this for the entire journey. And at this moment, they hesitate because they all of a sudden realize, what if I don't know what I want? What if I don't know what I want? And they're told, and I quote, well, that's for the room to decide. The room reveals all. What you get is not what you think you wish for, but what you most deeply wish for. 
And the author of this book remarks, what if the desires that they are conscious of, the ones that they've chosen, as it were, are not their innermost longings and their deepest wish? What if, in some sense, their deepest longings are humming under their consciousness, unawares? So let me ask this of us. What if the desires that we are conscious of are not necessarily our innermost longings? What if our deepest longings are humming under our consciousness, unaware? And I've discovered this, friends, over and over again in my life. Many times with some of, the, some of you in this room. One of my favorite questions, if you give me the honor to ask it, is the one that we began with tonight. What do you want? There have been so many times I've sat across the table from somebody and I've seen eyes well up with tears or I've experienced sort of mountains of silence just from that question. What do you want? In response to that question, I've seen eyes full of hope and fear and loss and gratitude all at the same time. I can remember specific moments of, of asking, what do you want? And within seconds, tears are rolling down somebody's face. And they don't even have words to describe this thing that's humming down below the surface of their consciousness. I want you to imagine tonight, this is going to be a pretty simple um, image, but I think it will serve us well tonight. I want you to imagine that you can hold one of your deepest desires between two fingers like this. So I want you guys to actually do that with me. Take one of your hands and just like imagine that you're just holding on to one of your deepest desires between two fingers like this. And imagine that you're, you're carefully holding on to that. Now I want you to take that desire and I want you to put it in the palm of your other hand. And then I want you to close your fist around that desire and squeeze it until your knuckles turn white. This, I think, is a great picture of what our relationship is with our desires. Knuckles white and a closed fist. I hear knuckles cracking now. Everybody's like really uncomfortable. Uh, no one can see what's in here. It can't be shared. It can't be explored. And no one can put anything else in here either. And you know why I think we do this with our desires? I think we do this because we don't think we can trust them. And I don't think we can trust anybody else with them. Or we don't think we can trust anybody else with them. When I was 21 years old, there was this, uh, there was this season where if you were to ask me what I wanted, <laughs> I kid you not, the answer was a really nice set of speakers. Um, I wanted a set of Bowers and Wilkins 602s. If you know anything about speakers, they are fantastic. Uh, and, and these things um, have these unreal reviews that this, this current model of them had just dropped on the market. Um, the problem is that I was super broke and they're really expensive. Um, kind of, I was broken away because I had just received a huge uh, loan check that was supposed to go paying for, be paying for my, like, my room and board at college. Uh, <clears throat> anyway, um, but just for kicks, I called Bowers and Wilkins uh, to ask where they sold these things because you couldn't find them at, like at the time I was there, uh, you know, Radio Shack or Best Buy I think was in existence. Oh, there was another huge audio store I forget the name of, but, um, but you couldn't find them at normal stores. So I called their company up because, yeah, none of the websites were not a thing as much then, but definitely Google Maps wasn't out. Um, so I called them and I said, hey, where are you selling these things? And I kid you not, at that time there were only two locations on the West Coast that sold this brand of speaker and one of them was one mile from my house one mile from my house. I didn't believe in the providence of God at that moment in life, but I knew that was a sign from him, 
okay? That if he didn't want me to have BMW 602s, he should not have put definitive audio just down the street. I knew that. So I walk into this place, and I kid you not, it's immaculate. I feel like a fraud immediately. I kind of am because I'm walking in with loan money. Uh, and uh, it's super hard, kind of weird place to find. Very little description on the door. Like now it would be super cool because we try to make things hard to find and that, that's part of what makes them cool. But at that time it was really obnoxious. And I walk in, there's like three employees and I'm pretty sure they only have two or three like people walk in a day, which I think is plenty for them to make their money given how expensive everything is in there. And, and I mean, there's like everything you can imagine at the time. Uh, seating is comfortable. There's fire in the, uh, going on in the corner. There's drink stations up everywhere. It's this really, really kind of swanky place, right? Uh, and this guy walks up to me and says, good, e- or good afternoon, sir. Uh, would you like to have a listening demonstration? And thank God I'd read about what those things were. And I said, yes, I would. He said, well, do you have a CD that you'd like to use? And I said, yes, I do. And I handed him a copy of Sting and the Police, and I asked him to play Englishman in New York which is a fantastic song to do a listening demonstration to. Um, if you don't know that song, you should change that. Uh, anyway, this guy walks me to this huge room with two really nice leather chairs, reclining chairs, and behind these chairs is a row of, of stereo receivers, and in front of me are all of these speakers equidistant from the chairs. So this speaker matches this one, this one matches this one. You guys get the, get the point, right? And, and for the next hour... This guy stands behind me, switching receivers and speaker, doing speakers and receiver combinations with different songs from that fantastic album, uh, while somebody else is bringing me free drinks. Um, and, and the entire time, it's just for me to decide which speakers I want. I mean, this is how nice these speakers are, right? And, and, uh, and I think this is an incredible way to spend my day. Um, but after an hour of sitting there, uh, I finally was confident enough to make my decision in like some kind of boss I paid in cash. And, um, and, and let me remind you, this was loan money. My wife and I are still paying off some piece of my Bowers and Wilkins 602s that I bought my junior year of college. Still, okay? <clears throat> Do you know why I bought those speakers? There's one reason why I bought those speakers. It's because I wanted them. That's it. I bought those speakers because I had a desire for them. That's how powerful desire is. I was kind of a fraud on that day. I'd spent more money on those speakers than I did legitimately on my first car. And I did it with loan money that I'd have to pay back with a religion degree. Okay? <laughs> it's not a good idea. Some of you in this room are like, I uh, know. <laughs> uh, uh, logic, listen to this, like logic, wisdom, prudence, patience. If those are like, if that needs to be a vocab lesson, we got some serious issues. Okay, these are real good things you need to know about. Logic and wisdom and prudence and patience. None of those things, this is baffling to me as I look back, none of those things were more powerful than my desire to buy speakers. I wanted speakers and something was close to me. So I had a hunger and I had an opportunity to satisfy that hunger and all of the wisdom and logic in the world didn't matter. That's how strong my desires are. And if my desire to buy speakers is capable of overcoming all of those huge things, how strong do you think my sexual desires might be? Or my desires surrounding my identity? My desires for power, for relevance, for intimacy? What do you think those desires are able to overcome? How powerful are those You see, desire fundamentally opens us up. It admits hunger. It admits uh, that, that there's something inside of me that I, I, that I make space for, and I want it to be filled. 
And it makes me, it makes us vulnerable. And at this age, at the age everyone in this room is, every single one of us in this room has had our desires lead us to some places of vulnerability where we've made some really dumb decisions. Every single one of us in this room has done this. Or, or we've been hurt, or we've hurt others. And if you trace back sort of, well, how did I get there? Well, it's because you hungered for a thing, and then you started satisfying that hunger. Every single one of us in this room has stories that we could, we could uh, unpack and explain where we've seen this happen. We've hungered for things which don't ultimately satisfy. And in response to that, in response to desiring things which don't satisfy us or desiring things which, which we have to pay for later that have consequences, desiring things which bring hurt to us and to others, one of our responses is to close our knuckles around it and keep it locked tight because we don't trust that our desires are good for us and we don't know if we can trust anybody else with them. We shut them down or shut them out. This, by the way, for any of you that know much about sort of world religions and that sort of thing, this is some of the appeal for Buddhism in the world, is to get rid of suffering, which is, I guess, a word I maybe am just now introducing as I think about it, but, but when I'm talking about you experiencing hurt or hurting others, you can think suffering. In order to get rid of that, what we must do is overcome desire. Let it go, get rid of it. You see the appeal? Like it's not that, it's not that like a, a Buddhist mentality or a Buddhist worldview w- would not say that fundamentally desire, I mean, they might say that desire is the problem, but the, but the end game here is to get rid of suffering, and desire is just the thing that keeps leading it to us, because uh, a Buddhist worldview would definitely say desire is what opens you up to suffering, and if you could just overcome it, if you could be content with the world as it is, with the tragedies and with the evils with the death that exists in this world, if you could just not desire things, then you could find some kind of tranquility and peace and not suffer. If for once I can get rid of these desires which leave me so vulnerable, I wouldn't be so open to hurt. That's the story that happens virtually every time a romance ends and somebody says, I'm never going to fall in love again. (laughs) I take my desire for intimacy and vulnerability and love and I close my fist tightly around it. And it's not because I don't want love. It's not because I don't want intimacy. It's not because I don't want vulnerability. It's because I don't want to be hurt. I don't want to suffer, you see? It's not because you don't want those things. It's because you don't want to hurt. And you think the way to not be hurt or to, get, or not be hurt, or to hurt others or something is to get rid of your desire or lock it up tight. I was asking one of my friends about this today. He's a therapist, and, and he said, we learn, these are big words, we learn to exile or disidentify. We learn to exile or disidentify with those desires we don't feel like fit. I said, we feel don't fit. We exile or disidentify with those desires we don't feel fit or that won't be validated or desires that get us in trouble or desires that make us too vulnerable. Let me read those things again, because he he would argue as a therapist, he's saying, these are the things I see in people when they disidentify, they start trying not to identify with certain desires, and desires, friends, sit super close to our identity. They're all tangled up in who we are. People try to disidentify with their desires, or they exile them, they kick them out. I was saying they, they, they control them, they, they boundary them, they keep them locked up tight somewhere. He says, we do this with desires that we don't think fit. Like, it just doesn't make sense right now in light of this particular context. 
And because it doesn't make sense, I get rid of it or I just stop trying to identify with it. Or I have a desire that just isn't going to be validated right now. If this desire gets out, nobody's going to respond to this. Or I have a desire that sometimes gets me in trouble. Or a desire that makes me too vulnerable. However you want to word it, here's the thing. We are people who entertain desires only as long as we can control them. We are a people who entertain, who who look at, who lift up, who offer our desires so long as we have maintained some semblance of control. But if we don't have control, if we aren't able to guarantee that our desires can be satisfied, we don't really want our desires. I'm fine with something so long as I can satisfy it. But if I can't guarantee that satisfaction, then wanting something just leaves me open to hurt. God, would you take this desire away from me? Do you know that prayer? And the way of Jesus, golly, it's antithetical to the Buddhist response. It's antithetical to the way we typically respond to this stuff. The way of Jesus, the wisdom of God for us in light of our desires is to do the worst thing imaginable. Surrender control and lift up your desires. Think about that. If it's true, actually, I know this is true. I want to sort of say it like it's really not. I just know this is true for us. If you do not feel like you have some control over the thing, you do not want your desires to be let loose, to get out. We want to exile them, control them, uh, disidentify with them, whatever word you want to use there. If we don't feel like we have some semblance of control, we don't often like doing that. And so if I don't feel like I have any control and I feel like this could, I I don't know, whatever, I, I want to push them down or get rid of them, Jesus would ask us to surrender our control and lift up our desires. So rather than not focus on desires and eliminate suffering, focus a lot on desires and go right into suffering. This is so contrary to our normal response. Each week in my local church, my family and I are a part of, <coughs> in our prayer liturgy, our, uh, the sort of the the things that we typically do for prayer each week, we take a few moments to pray for like all sorts of things. Some of you are in churches that do this. We pray for people that are, we pray for our leaders. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for people in prison. We pray for, uh, you know, people that want to know God and don't know him. Um, we pray for all sorts of things. But, the, but I think the time of prayer over the past year that's most silent in the sanctuary where I worship on Sundays is the time when we pray for peace and for God's justice in the world. It's a haunting silence every single week. Each week someone says, and now, something like this, and now we pray for peace and for justice in our city, in our country, and throughout the world, and it's just met with silence most weeks until the leader finally says, uh, you know, uh, whatever, we, we all say amen to it and go on to the next thing. But it's this silence, and I think I know why. I think I know why when, this, when we say, hey, now we're going to pray for peace and for justice in our city and our country and throughout the world. I think I know why that we're silent most of the time. It's because in response to all the evil in our world, like what happened in Florida last week, what happens in our families over the holidays, what happens in our romances, what happens in our friendships, what happens with children, what happens with the poor, In response to all of these things that are happening in our world, we don't lift up our voices to pray because we're afraid our prayers won't be answered. It's just so big, and it seems so impossible. Our desires for for justice, for intimacy, for significance, our desires to be known and loved, these are so big. 
Jesus invites us to lift these up to him, all of them, every single one of them, and it's terrifying because it's vulnerable. But I think it's the only way to know he's good. It's the only way to know he loves us. If you've got your Bible, I want you to actually look at the text Kirsten read. I'm going to read it again real quick. It's from Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 7, uh, in what's frequently called sort of the end of the Sermon on the Mount, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, these are the words of Jesus, keep on asking, and you will be given what you ask for. Keep on looking, and you will find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened for everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And the door is opened to everyone who knocks. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? If they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. And if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? Ask, 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 over and over, and all over the gospel accounts. But in this passage, six times in six ways, Jesus invites us to ask. Not to take your desires and decide which are appropriate to bring to God. Not to measure them and clean them up because he's too insecure to receive them. Not to dodge giving him some desires because he might not be powerful enough to do anything about them. To give them all to God. Whatever you ask for. Everyone who asks. Everyone who seeks. Everyone who knocks. You know how much more our Father in Heaven gives? Jesus' answer is much more. Much more. I know some of us have been sold some kind of lie, maybe, maybe directly from Satan. Maybe we've been in Sunday school classes or read some pastor online or I don't, I don't know what we've heard. Maybe we've sold some lie, though, that asking God for things is too childish or too immature or not holy enough. And that we should be thanking Him if we were really holy or praising Him or only asking on behalf of others. How dare a sports team pray for a victory? That's a punchline. Friends, we are invited, even commanded, to do these other things, right? To praise Him and to worship Him and to pray on behalf of others and to just give Him thanks, absolutely. But we are also commanded to ask. I want you to listen to this quote from, um, which is a wonderful, wonderful pastor and and, uh, theologian, a a guy who wrote a great commentary on Matthew named Dale Bruner. Um, I'll try to read it slowly because we don't have the, the, the thing up here, but if you guys want the the quote, I'll be happy to share it on our Facebook group or something, but <clears throat> he says this, we need to be reminded that asking is not, as some spiritual teachers tell us, more selfish than praise, which we are told is more God-centered, or that asking is more selfish than intercession, which means praying on behalf of others, which is said to be more neighbor-centered, or that asking is more selfish than thanksgiving, which we hear is more humble. All six sentences of the Lord's Prayer are petitions. You know the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You might have heard of it uh, from Matthew chapter 6. All six sentences in that prayer are petitions, which means they're askings, they're questions. That is, they're askings. He says that, right? Uh, And the right way for disciples to appear before God is not as givers to a divine egoist, but as receivers from a generous Father. Let me read that again. The right way for disciples to appear before God is not as givers to a divine divine egoist, but as receivers from a generous Father. 
There can be more self-centeredness in the praise understanding of worship, which assumes that we are the important actors and God the passive recipient, than there is in the asking understanding of worship, which lets God be God and lets us be human beings. Friends, in just a little bit, we're going we're gonna, to, in this room, we're, we're going to stand up. You, I guess you don't have to, but you're invited to stand up. And we have a worship team which volunteers every week to lead us in a time of praise before God. And some of us might stand here with hands up and everything. And, and, and the invitation tonight is to realize that even as we stand singing words out to God, there's an invitation to remember that you don't even have breath except for the breath he gave you. That these words are being returned back to him out of the abundance of what he has decided to offer. Because each and every one of us in this room is a great might not have been. Every single one of us. That even as we stand and give and offer and all of this is what Christians will often say, we just are returning back to you what is yours, God. This is the kind of language that we often use. There can be much more self-centeredness in the praise understanding of worship, which assumes that we are the important actors and God the passive recipient, laying back on some couch going, come on, come on, guys. I don't know, wearing a sweatshirt like this, right? Uh, then, then there is in the asking understanding of worship where we sit in this room or we stand in this room and we let God be God and have us be human beings dependent upon his mercy and upon his grace. Ask, friends, Ask. There is, oh my Lord, so much wisdom in the scriptures about asking. In my notes in preparation for tonight, it's just packed of Proverbs and stuff out of Isaiah and stuff out of the Psalms and all over the New Testament. The overwhelming amount of things God has to say about our our desires. Not being led around by them. Taking thoughts which are related to our desires often captive and stewarding them well. And being patient with our desires, because when you have a desire, the the, the Proverbs writer, the wisdom writer would say, if you have desires with no understanding, or if you move with haste in your desires, the end is folly, the end is foolishness every time. There's wisdom like this all over the scriptures, all over. But the greatest wisdom is this with your desires. And so I've just chosen tonight to just kind of focus on one aspect of God's wisdom as it relates to our desires, because I think especially in a season which is often dark and in a season when people are making decisions about the next year, and people have seen idols break and they, they're feeling like they have to settle for things. In the midst of this season, I want to invite you to ask for the desires that you have. Ask God for them. You aren't invited to trust your desires, but neither are you invited to trust yourself with your desires. Offer them to your Father in heaven. And I I briefly mentioned this, but I think one of the tremendous hang-ups for many of us is, is that we have all sorts of desires, many of which are conflicting even in us. And often I think before we go to God with our desires, we try to figure out which ones should I bring Him and if this one's okay and if this one's not okay. And sometimes we don't ask for things that we really want because we think we shouldn't ask for those things. Don't waste any time, any, deciding which desires you should bring to God. If someone in this room has a desire to see some evil fall upon me, do you know what I actually hope that person does right now? I hope they pray about it. Someone in this room could want me to kill over and die. I think the best thing for you and for me is for you to say, God, I want Jason to kill over and die. Because I don't trust anybody else with that desire. Do you see? 
I don't trust anybody else for that desire. I mean, I hope they don't desire it, okay? But if they do, I hope that they actually bring that to God because he won't be manipulated. He cannot be coerced. He loves me. He can protect me as he sees fit, and he can somehow love that person and change their heart. Nobody else has that ability. There isn't a mantra. There isn't like a calming discipline. There isn't a book or a devotional or a counselor or a pastor or anybody else who has that kind of ability. There might be all sorts of other things that could help them in this process, but the first thing and the fundamental thing I hope they do is they take their desire, which would, which would be really bad if it was satisfied for me, I hope they bring it to God. Raw and exact. They don't have to go and say, God, I know this isn't a good thing to desire. God is really, really, really good at leading you where he needs to take you. They can just go, God, I want to see Jason fall down. That's where I'd want them to go. Friend, you don't have to decide which desires you want to bring to God. Bring them all to Him and ask Him for what you want. God, I want a parking spot. I want to be married. God, I want to be single. I want someone to ask me how I'm doing today. I want to never deal with this again. I just want to be one inch taller. I want to have better friends, God. I want to be a better friend. Anything anything. I, had, I do a, a lot of mar- premarital counseling especially, but I do some marriage counseling and premarital counseling, and every now and again, I, you know, I talk to somebody and thank God for their honesty, somebody who will privately, not even in the couple, sometimes it actually comes out in the couple's session, which is rad, but, but privately somebody will say, I'm actually really afraid that I might cheat on my spouse. And I think the worst thing they could do is take that desire that they have, because that, that's why they're afraid, is because what they've identified is that somewhere in them, they have desires sometimes. It freaks them out. And they take it and they put it right here and they close their fist around it and pretend it's gone. Or like my friend said, they, they try to control it. Or like my friend said, they exile it or try to disidentify with it. And, but that desire doesn't probably just go away. It needs to be seen and dealt with and brought out into the light and let's figure out what to do with it. And the best case scenario is someone who actually tells me and others that and prays about it and we acknowledge it and then do something about it. Do you see? We might be afraid of these things, and, God, and we might be afraid of them because we don't trust them, and God says, don't trust them, trust me. We might be afraid of them because they've led us to hurt and, and pain and sorrow and suffering, and God says, I, I, I want you to open up to all of those things with me. All of those things. Not because God is some cosmic vending machine, but because he's good, and he loves not only you, but everyone else he has made, and he takes all of that into consideration as he responds to your request. There is nowhere safer you can go. Nowhere. So he's good and he's wise in bringing our desires to him. He cannot be manipulated. He cannot be coerced. In this passage, there's some other passages that kind of stir up some other questions for me in this, right? But in this passage, he doesn't even say, everyone who asks, give them whatever they want. He says, just ask me for anything and I give good things. That's what he says. I give good things. But there's another reason that you should ask him And this, to me, is the deeper one. Because it restores you to the posture of a child before a loving father. Before a cool dad. Friends, we cannot be loved if we're not known. And Jesus is inviting us to bring our desires before the Father so that we can know that we are loved. 
Many of us in this room struggle to know how much God loves us precisely because we haven't asked him. We withhold the deepest desires of our heart thinking he's never going to come through with this. He can't possibly say, I'm too problematic. The things I want are too big. The things I want are not appropriate. They don't fit. The things I want keep causing me harm. And so I don't ask him. And some of us, I think we put the cart before the horse. We say, I want to know that he loves me before I'm willing to even risk anything. And look, I mean, this, this sounds a little trite. Uh, so I'll just say it and try to move off of it as quickly as possible. God has already done a lot in history to demonstrate his love for you. For, I mean, Jesus on the cross, sure, the work of the church over the past 2,000 years, the fact that thousands of people right now have given sacrificially so that you could be in this room at this moment hearing this, these words that God loves you. Some of us really want to know God loves us and we're holding on so tightly and the way to know that is actually to open up. So um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your hand like this. This is a really simple illustration. Take that fist, that white knuckle fist. This is all God wants you to do. Turn it over and open it up. In that vulnerable position to actually look at your desire. And I want you to hold your hand out like this and I want you to look in the middle of your palm and I want you to say something that is, I think, really vulnerable for us. It's crazy. It's like two words with a question mark at the end. I want you to look at it and imagine that your desire is sitting right there in the middle and I want you to say, Father, please. Everybody say that right now. That's like embarrassing and childish and scary, isn't it? It's like two words. It's weird. But friends, we are so not used to being vulnerable. We're so used to hiding and protecting and clutching our fists and exiling and disidentifying and all these things that are weird words and terrible. God's invitation is for you to take your desires and lift them up to him with this open posture and see what he'll do. And, and you'll find that the more you do this, the more you engage our God as a loving father. If you are ever around kids, y'all, it's like the oldest image in the world. It's like the second oldest image in the world. Kids with parents. And they do this all the time. I got three of them, and all day, all they do is ask for things. All day. And you know what I don't want? I don't want them to stop asking and have to figure out if this is an okay question to ask dad. Because he might be angry, because he might not like me, because he might not give me what I want. And so I'm not going to ask him. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out how to take care of all this on my own. And that's why my four-year-old gets up in the morning and sneaks all the stuff she sneaks. That's why my nine-year-old goes, I think he's nine, goes back and forth between the parents trying to figure out. I don't even know how old he is. That's how much I don't love my kids. Oh, gosh. This is about God, not about me. Uh, uh, <coughs> But all day they ask, and, and the, when I know that, that we have a, a mostly healthy relationship, it's when I know that they don't have fear to ask me for things. When my kids can say, I've said this here at the house before because it's just it's a classic example from one of my kids. I love it when my kids do something ludicrous like ask for ice cream for breakfast because it's a reminder to me that they actually know that I love them and like them. It's stupid, and most of the time I'm not going to give them ice cream for breakfast. Sometimes I do because I think it's so rad that they keep asking and I just want that in their history somewhere so that they can know that they never know. They never know when I might surprise them with something that's crazy for them. It's good for them, you see, that I don't give them ice cream for breakfast all the time. You guys know that, right? You're old enough to know that that's not actually good for them. They don't know that. They don't. And so I like that I still have that authority to make those kinds of decisions in their life. 
But what I want is for them to just ask and ask and ask and ask and ask. And the more that you engage in this posture with God as your loving Father, what you'll find is you end up having more courage to dig deeper into your desires, to find out what's humming below the surface. And when you find those desires, if you've been practicing this posture of asking God for things, you'll offer up those ones too. And the more that you get to know Him like that, you know what you'll find? You'll find that you know you a lot more, which every single one of you in this room hungers for. And since I know that, I know that buried in the core of each and every one of us is that desire to be known and loved. Every single one of us in this room could have, when I said earlier, write this down or something like this, every single one of us could have said to be known and to be loved. Every single one of us could have said that. Or a speaker's fine, but I mean like you could have said the other thing. This practice of asking for whatever we want will lead us in the end to our deepest desires and seeing our Father, being satisfied and seeing our Father in heaven satisfy them. So I want to practice this right now, tonight. I, earlier I asked you guys to write something down, and if you didn't, I want you to think of something right now. I want to be kind, I want a boyfriend, uh, you know, to be known, speakers, whatever. <clears throat> and, I, and I want you to pray with me over that thing. So I want you to all to do this with me physically right now. I want you to take your hands, close your eyes, because that'll make you all feel safer and like you're alone and nobody's seen you all do this kind of crazy stuff. But I want you to actually close your eyes and I want you to take both of your hands, palms up, and hold them open before you. And I just want us to pray. And I want you to pray with me as I pray. Father, you see these things in our hands. Your scriptures tell us that you know the thoughts that we have before a word is on our tongue, that there's nowhere we can hide from you, even that you must search us and find us out for ourselves even. Whatever it is that we've written down, whatever it is we've thought about, whatever it is we didn't want to write down and almost wrote down, we ask you for them, please. Would you show yourself to be a good father who cares about the desires of our hearts? Lead us, Father, to even understanding the deeper desires we have and give us the courage to offer them up to you still more and more. Show yourself to be so good that we would be a people who pray for the impossible things, for peace and for hope for families in Florida after the shootings last week. We pray for impossible things like being known and loved. We pray for impossible things like somebody else in this world loving us romantically, for good friends, for work that is dignifying and, 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 and awesome and that we can make a living from, for resurrected bodies and life everlasting seeing you in the flesh. Teach us, Lord, to open up, and as we, as we sing to you in the next little bit, I pray that you would keep us in this posture somehow in our spirits and our hearts. Make us people that are, are um, encouraging and by literally giving courage, God, to others around us to ask what they want too. May we be people that, that live like you. May our roommates and our family members, our, our friends, may, may they actually find it easier to express their desires because we are people who are safe to do that with. Because we've seen you be safe to do that with. Lord, thank you for, for asking us to do this. It is terrifying to open up um, and be vulnerable to you. 
but we ask you to satisfy um, these desires that we have and um, to take us into even further desires still. Would you receive our praise now with your pleasure and pour out your spirit upon us as we do? In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's people who would be willing to pray with you in the back if you'd like to pray.